All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, starting in verse 4. Actually, for context, we'll read the whole chapter. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and founding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. That sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Good morning. Pick up again with our series in John, uh, continuing here where we left off in John chapter 9. Uh, Last week, we took a little break in the text, just going to the first couple verses because we had that amazing answer from Jesus to the question of this man's suffering. I remember Jesus uh, was asked the question if it was this man who sinned or his parents who had sinned uh, that caused him to be born blind. And Jesus' answer, of course, was neither. It was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so we took some time last week to look at this question of the sovereign purposes of God, even in and through our suffering. Uh, This week, we continue in the text and look at exactly what those works of God were, uh, what they would be, both the physical healing of this man as Jesus opens his eyes, uh, but even more significantly, as we'll cover this morning, the perfect spiritual healing that he receives as this man now comes to faith in Christ. Uh, So let us commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious eye-opening power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as this text is preached, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that all who hear would be able to see the glory of Christ, that they would be able to see your kingdom and enter in by faith. Give us spiritual sight to behold wondrous things in your law. May we see through your word, and through the seeing, may we savor your glory. May we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Bless this preaching of your word. Move in our hearts. Bless who hear. Do more than we could ask or imagine, Lord. Uh, In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, So look with me, if you still have your Bibles open, to John chapter 9. Again, from the beginning of the passage. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So we pick up with verse 4. So Jesus here draws an analogy from the regular patterns of the workday. Right? We must work while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Right? So you can imagine this was uh, long before the days of heavy-duty construction lights. Right? You think of the big uh, lights we have on our tractors and combines now. You could really work all night if you needed to. Right? They didn't have that on their, uh, on their cattle, on their oxen. Um, so in the days before these lights, before uh, headlights, your ability to work was limited to these daytime hours. And so there really was a real urgency to make the most of the daylight. Right, think of the saying, you got to make hay while the sun is shining. Uh, Jesus compares his earthly ministry to the daylight saying, while I'm here, we must work. While I'm here, we must do the special work for which the Father has sent me. Night is coming. The time when the light of the world will be taken away. And in this, Jesus alludes to his death. Right? The time is coming when the light of the world would be taken out of the world. And so this night refers to the darkness of that period after Jesus would first be taken from the disciples. And so Jesus is saying, this is the time. While I'm here in my earthly ministry, we must be doing the works that the Father has given me. And healing this man is one of those works. And in this, we are given a clue as to how this miracle is to be interpreted. It is a miracle, but more than that, it is a sign. What does a sign do? A sign communicates something. It says something. It points to something. And namely here, as all the signs in John's gospel, these works that the Father gave to the Son to do, they all testify of him. And John tells us why he recorded them. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Further, this also reveals something more of what Jesus meant when he said he is the light of the world. Right? The light shines that those who were in darkness may see. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Now this is an interesting way for Jesus to heal this man. Jesus certainly didn't need to do it this way. Jesus didn't need to use mud. There's nothing special in the formula here of using spit to make, make some mud. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus healing in a good variety of ways, right? Sometimes with just a word, even from a great distance, he says, go, your son will live to the centurion. Uh, other times he goes and he lays on his hands, raises people up. Uh, in one instance, a woman just came up and touched him, touched the hem of his garment, and she was healed. Uh, so we see certainly Jesus did not need to use this particular method. 
You did not need to make this spit mud and have the washing in Siloam in order for this man to be healed. And so that's led to much speculation regarding the reason that Jesus did it this way and then the reason why John recorded this detail for us. Right? Why would he make spit mud, <laughs> put it on the man's eyes, give him these odd instructions? Well, some have seen the use of mud to be a reference back to the original creation of man. Remember again, what did God use to make man in the first place? Right? God formed man from the dust of the earth. So here, de- Jesus demonstrates that he has the same power, right? using a little dust in order to make eyes that were otherwise lacking. Showing that he possesses the same power over this part of the body as God demonstrated over the whole body in creation. Others have suggested that by using something uh, viewed to be ceremonially unclean, uh, such as saliva, a bodily fluid, uh, by using that, Jesus is demonstrating again that cleanness uh, flows out from him. Right? Similar to how, uh, if you remember, when Jesus touches a leper, what happens? Jesus is not made unclean by the leper, but the leper is made clean through contact with Jesus. It's also been noted that by this mixing of clay and saliva, Jesus would have been again in violation of uh, what the Jewish tradition considered to be a category of work on the Sabbath day. He was doing something that was not permitted uh, by the Jews with their traditions. Uh, And as we'll see, this is going to be part of the conflict that follows this miracle. Uh, So by doing it this way, when he wouldn't have had to, Jesus may have been intentionally stepping on the toes of the Jews uh, with their uh, fence laws, showing his disregard once again for their man-made traditions. Now, whatever his reason, this was certainly a strange instruction for this man to receive, uh, and it presents something of a test for this blind man, right? So put yourself in his sandals. He has just encountered this rabbi, Uh, He has maybe overheard the theological discussion that Jesus had with his disciples as to whether or not this man's blindness was his fault or his parents' fault. Uh, And now, apparently unasked for, right? There's no record of the blind man approaching Jesus, but this rabbi uh, just spits on the ground, makes some mud, picks it up and smears it on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash. Now put yourself in the position of the blind man. Those would be some odd instructions. That would be a strange day compared to what you usually have when you go out to beg, right? So for a beggar who has been blind his whole life, we could understand if this man had been somewhat skeptical, right? A difficult life like the one that he has had can often be enough to leave people feeling somewhat jaded or cynical, Right now, this rabbi just slapped some spit mud on your eyes and told you to go wash. And you're thinking, you know, adding mud to my eyes seems to be a step in the wrong direction. Right? You, you've added something more blocking my sight. I don't need anything more blocking my sight. And so this action could have even been interpreted as mocking by this poor man. Yet notice that at the word of Christ... The man goes and does, as Jesus had said. 
presumably in faith and in hope. Right? So despite the many possible reasons that he may have had for skepticism, right? despite the, the several reasons why he might not trust that this is going to work out so well, the man simply obeys. And joy of joys, he comes back seeing. And in this, we have a tremendous example for us of what true faith does. True faith, satisfied with the simple word of the living God, trusts that word against all the counterpoints provided by the world, the flesh, and the devil. True faith simply trusts the word of God against all possible objections, against all possible reasons not to, things that our sinful flesh would suggest to us. And then, true faith that trusts God is followed immediately by a full willingness to obey. True faith trusts in God even when we think we might have a better way of doing things. Right? I can imagine this man was probably questioning in his mind, like, why this? Why mud? Why Siloam? Why do it this way? Could you not just speak the word and heal me as maybe I've heard you've done for other people? Right? Think of Naaman uh, with his leprosy when he came to Elisha. He's told to go dip in the Jordan seven times. Naaman had some other ideas, right? Why can't I go back to Damascus? We have better, we have better rivers <laughs> there at home than what you have here in Israel. Um, we would have our own suggestions. He would have his own ideas uh, for what could be a better way for Jesus to heal him. And I think in the same way, we too can be tempted to doubt God's word or God's ways. Right, we may look at what God has instructed of us and say, does it really have to be like this? Right, why do I have to do that? And the temptation is to think that we may have our own way, which is better. And yet we see for this man that what broke through any possible objections he had was the conclusion that it was safe to follow Christ. We see he was rewarded. And so must our faith break through objections, break away from the thinking of the world as we would entrust ourselves completely to Christ and his word. And we will find, as this man did, that trust in Christ is never misplaced. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Let's continue on, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. Now the healing of a man born blind caused a bit of a stir in the neighborhood, as you might imagine, right? Think, now put yourself in the shoes of uh, one of these neighbors, right? Here now you're seeing this man that you've seen begging, 
right? Perhaps you've chatted with him as you've passed by on your way to work. Uh, Perhaps you've given to him semi-regularly. And now suddenly you see this same man who used to be sitting and begging, walking around, eyes wide open, seeing you, interacting with you. The people are understandably astonished and they're asking, is this not the same man who used to sit and beg for money? Is that not the blind beggar? And some people answer, well, no, no, that must just be a doppelganger, right? It's just a lookalike. This this can't be the same man. But the man himself overhears these questions and says, no, 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 I am the man. I was the blind beggar. It was me. And so they said to him, verse 10, then how, how were your eyes opened? Fair question. It's exactly what we would all be asking, right? How, what happened? How is it? that you can now see. Verse 11, he answers. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now in this, we do have another good example for us to follow. This man testifies of all that Jesus has done for him. Now look, at this point, he had received no instructions from Jesus to do so. Right? Jesus didn't say, now go and tell everyone what I have done for you. He simply does it as the overflow of his own joy. Right? We would see that this sharing with others what we have received is the natural result when someone has received incredible blessings. And so he is inserting himself into these conversations, telling the people, I am the man. I am the one who was blind. Jesus opened my eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, let us do the same. Let us tell of all that Christ has done for us. And we see here, even if Jesus had never commanded us to go and tell others, right? Even if we had never been given the great commission where we're sent to go and make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, if we had never been told to do that, would we not naturally want to tell others of all that Christ has done for us? Especially when those same blessings are offered to them? Do we not want to share the greatness of what we have? Do we not want to see others brought into our joy? Does love not require us to desire our neighbors to have the same blessings we have? So brothers and sisters, let us testify. Let us tell of all that Christ has done for us. And may the joy of our lives testify to the truthfulness of what we say. You can imagine if this man would have come and said, I am the man. But if he would have been very, very dour, very down in the dumps, very gloomy about it. Right? If you were skeptical that this was the same man and he was saying, I am the man, but he had no joy in him at all you would be tempted to disbelieve him, right? 
So for us, if we are saying, what I have is the greatest blessing possible in this life, right? What Christ has done for me is to give me an inheritance that will blow out of the water all earthly riches put together. The forgiveness I have in Christ, this is the treasure hidden in a field worthy of selling everything to gain, right? This is the pearl of great price that I would, in my joy, sell everything for, right? If we are saying this is what we have, then brothers and sisters, let our lives display the joy appropriate to such a treasure, right? We can testify to the truthfulness of what we proclaim, through the joy that we have in our lives. Let us be like this man saying, I am the man, I was blind, and now I see. Let us tell of all that Christ has done for us. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and had opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Here now John begins to set up for us the conflict that followed this miracle. Now the people mentioned in verse 8, those neighbors and others who had seen him before as a beggar, uh, now bring him to the Pharisees. They want to get, so what's the, how do our religious leaders interpret this miracle? What's their take on this? Um, And we're told again that this was a Sabbath day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes, right? So right from right there, we can predict what's coming next, right? If we've been reading through John's gospel, uh, we remember back to John 5 where Jesus had entered into a conflict with the Jews because he had healed a paralytic on the Sabbath, and then had told that man to pick up his mat and walk. Now, according to the traditions of the Jews, mat carrying was an activity prohibited on the Sabbath day. God had appointed the Sabbath to be a day of rest. And so in the name of keeping the fourth commandment, the Jews made many of their own rules as to what was, was and was not permissible to do on the Sabbath. Uh, you may have heard this phrase, uh, fence laws, right? What, what the Jews did was they sought to build a fence around the law, a fence around Torah. Uh, and so we'll, we'll make the fence be quite far from the edge, right? And as long as we never go over the fence, then we're surely never going to break the commandments, right? So we'll, we'll go above and beyond with the commandments that Jesus or that God had given to us, right? In, in the name of keeping these commandments, we will add our own commandments to build this fence around the law. Uh, And as we see, it was those fence laws that constantly had Jesus and the Jews um, in conflict. And that's what we'll see here as well. Uh, So Jesus, according to their understanding, Jesus was a double offender, both in John 5 and here, uh, because not only did they consider healing a man to be a no-go on the Sabbath, Right? But the instruction that he also pick up and carry his mat was the other offense. And so with that understanding, we see the same thing here. And we're going to expect that there's going to be conflict again. Uh, because we have these two activities mentioned that both would have been triggering to the Pharisees. And John gives them both to us in verse 14. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus did what? Number one, made the mud. Right? Not allowed by the Jews. 
And number two, opened the man's eyes. Also not allowed on the Sabbath according to their fence laws. But as the man who, pardon me, as the Pharisees began to question this man who had been blind, they run into a dilemma. They encounter a problem. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Now we see their dilemma. The Pharisees are divided. Uh, some of them, beginning with their fence laws, beginning with what, how they interpret the Sabbath command, conclude that anyone who would dare to violate any of their traditions must be a sinner and therefore cannot be thought to be from God in any sense. Right? Their reasoning is that anyone who is a true prophet or a true godly man would be the one who would surely be the most diligent in following all of our traditions, right? all of our fence laws, all of our man-made rules. And yet we see that there was a division because there were others who were astounded by this miracle, who see that it must have been done by the power of God, and so they reason, surely God would not use a sinner God would not use a false teacher to perform such great miracles. As they ask, how can a man who is a sinner do such great signs? Can, how can they do such signs? So they have this split. They have this division where some of the Pharisees are unsure. And so they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? The blind man said, or the man who had been blind said, he is a prophet. So this man, again, not knowing the fullness yet of who Jesus was, nevertheless sides with Jesus in this first dispute, saying, he is a prophet, right? He is from God. Whatever the disputes among the Pharisees might be, this man recognized that a work of God had been done in his life. And he concludes that the one who worked this miracle must be a great man, a prophet, or perhaps the prophet, right? The one prophesied like Moses who would come. Certainly, whatever he is, he is a man sent from God. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? All right, so what was their first solution to their problem? Right, well, the question was, how can a sinner do such great signs? How can a sinner open the eyes of the blind? Well, their first answer was, he didn't. Right, their first answer was to doubt the reports. Right, notice they doubted the story. They, you, know, you don't have to explain a miracle if you deny that it happened. Well, that only worked for so long. They began to investigate, and they called the man's parents, and they asked him these questions. All right, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man. 
Right? And they asked, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now notice what John tells us here. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Right, so as they begin their investigation, they're finding that this matter has now been pretty thoroughly established. Right, they called their two or three witnesses forward. Witnesses who would know had this man truly been born blind. Right, we can think the neighbors might have been mistaken as to the man's identity. Right, the neighbors who bring this man and say, here was a man who was blind, who now sees. They, they could have been mistaken, but certainly the man's parents could not be fooled. Granted that he is their son, can they testify that he was truly blind before the alleged miracle? Can they testify that he was born blind? Right? It is a different thing in their minds to simply heal somebody of blindness compared to healing somebody who was born blind. As the man himself will later say, no one has ever heard of the healing of a man born blind. Right, so they're asking the parents, right? For the man himself may not have ever remembered seeing, but the parents would be the ones who would know with certainty that he had actually been born blind. And so if it is their son and he was born blind, then what is the parents' explanation of the healing? And so the man's parents answered the questions that they were willing to. Yes, this is our son. Yes, he was really born blind. But notice they're not willing to answer the last question. They defer back to their son. They say he is old enough to testify. He is not a child. He is of age. Go ahead, ask him. He can speak for himself. And so John then tells us their hesitancy is not because they didn't know the answer, but rather that they were afraid of what it might mean for them if they gave an answer that would appear to align them in any way with Jesus. All right, look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now this is interesting, especially when we consider who John's original audience may have been. Here's Dia Carson. The parents of the healed man may be sketched in with such detail so that John's readers will see an example of people who know the truth but who will not boldly step over the line with courageous witness. All right, so Carson's theory is that uh, John wrote with the goal of evangelizing the Jews, right, bringing uh, Jews to faith in Jesus. And he goes on, so then John's readers, if they are becoming sympathetic to Jesus at all, must now identify themselves either with the parents whose faith was not strong enough to act with courage or with the healed man who comes to a growing understanding of who Jesus is. 
right? So to those who, like this man, have received amazing blessings from Christ, we must also be willing to testify to the truth. We must be those who cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard and experienced for ourselves. Now, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, but you have seen Christ to be an interesting person, if you have begun to be sympathetic of him, to him, if you have begun to see that there is something to all of this, right? the example of the blind man and his parents gives you a bit of an example, or gives you a, a contrast and a choice. Right? Will you shrink back in fear of what it may cost you to follow Christ? Or will you boldly proclaim, as the formerly blind man had done, of who Jesus really is? Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Let us not shrink back in fear of what it will cost us here. Let us boldly stake our claim with Christ. If you have not yet, let us testify through the public declaration of baptism. Let us identify with Christ and his church. And let us then testify with the bold proclamation of his gospel to the world. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Now the Jews, having appeared to have come to a consensus as to this question of whether Jesus was a sinner or a, a great man who had done a great work, uh, they appeared to have come to a consensus and they come back to confront the blind man, the formerly blind man, again. And this phrase here, they start with, give glory to God, is most likely an instruction for him to stop lying and to now tell the truth under oath. All right, what is an oath? Well, that is where we would call God as our witness. Um, and it's been compared here to the confrontation of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You may remember that story. Uh, Israel had been defeated in battle shortly into their conquest of the promised land. And God told Joshua that it was because Israel had sinned. Right? Somebody had kept some of the plunder that was meant to be dedicated to God. Uh, somebody had sinned and hid the stuff that they were not supposed to keep. Um, and so then through the divinely guided investigation... Achan was implicated, and Joshua confronts him, saying this, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua 7, 19. And so this is likely what's happening in this text as well. Right? Give glory to God is their way of saying, in essence, we charge you in the presence of God, tell the truth. Right? Call God as your witness and confess to us. Right? We know this man is a sinner, therefore you must be lying somehow. Admit it. You're hiding something. The man responds, Whether or not he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know everything about him. This I do know. 
He healed me. I once was blind, and now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? (laughs) He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Right, perceiving now that these questions were not honest questions, right? Uh, instead they appear to be a desperate grasping at straws by men who are blinded by their own hatred and prejudice. Uh, perceiving this, the healed man pokes at them. Now given what they had just said about their the last accusation about Christ, it was pretty obvious these men were not asking because they wanted to be disciples of Christ. And so at this point, we can see that this man's response is, as the theologians would say, snarky. Sarcastically, he reasons that he had already gone over the facts with them several times, and so clearly the only possible reason for their continued interest must be that they want to learn more so they can become Christ's disciples, right? Is that why you're asking me? You want to be his disciples? We see that this man's poke found a tender spot. His blow landed flush, and the Jews lash out in anger. Verse 28, they reviled him. They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not even know where he comes from. Now, their anger may spring in part from pricked consciences, right? This man they've been questioning has seen through their efforts to trip him up. Carson writes, his ironic, taunting question strips off all the pretense of even-handed evaluation. The bottom line is an authority question. They are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. And so in their minds, this conflict came down to this. It is between Jesus and Moses. It is an authority claim. Their greatest prophet, the one through whom God gave the law, versus this traveling rabbi with his confusing teaching, his disregard for their traditions. And after all, they don't even know where he comes from. Perhaps referencing back to the disputes Jesus had with them over this question of his origins. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so we're brought full circle. The Pharisees are faced again with that same dilemma first mentioned in verse 16. How could a man who is a sinner do such signs? Right, if he's really this wicked false teacher breaking God's law, leading people astray as the Pharisees think he is, then how can they account for this amazing display of divine power? Why would God listen 
to someone who is a sinner? Why would God seemingly vindicate this man by giving him such amazing miracle-working abilities? They are stuck again between these two contradictory positions. Number one, we are certain this man is a sinner, lawbreaker, anti-God, anti-Moses. And number two, God worked an amazing miracle through him. Right, how can we solve this dilemma? Right, and while there would be other possibilities, right, we, can, we, we see in Scripture uh, evil power is used to perform signs, uh, deceptive signs. Think of the magicians of Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. Uh, these other possibilities don't enter the discussion. Uh, the healed man is not concerned with working through all possible explanations. Um, and as Carson writes, his spiritual instincts are good, even if his theological argumentation is not entirely convincing. Uh, but it is presented to us this way, right? What do we make of Christ? Who is this man? Right? Is he the sinner the Pharisees say? Or is, has God not worked through him? Is Jesus anti-law? Is Jesus anti-Moses? Now, of course, John has already answered this alleged contradiction for us. If we've been reading through John, we know the answer to this. There is no conflict between Christ and Moses. Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was not a lawbreaker. Jesus was not anti-Moses. Rather, once again, it was the Jews who were mistaken. For as we've seen already, Moses himself wrote of Christ. The Old Testament itself testifies to Christ. In these disputes between Jesus and the Jews, Moses is on the side of Christ. And so Jesus never did actually break the law. Here, how do we reconcile this question? Right? He is a sinner. He did an amazing work. Well, the answer is number one was false. He is not a sinner. Jesus never broke the law. Only the rules which the Jews had added to the law. And as a side note, here again we see it is God alone who must be Lord of the conscience. Man is not free to make up his own commandments and then treat them as if they are binding on other people. We may not add to God's law. And so as we like to say here, Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice. So let us be mindful to avoid this error of the Pharisees in seeking to bind consciences where God has left them free. Now back to the text, verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Right. Triggered, provoked, hot and bothered as they were, by the man's argument and his prodding, the Jews bring forth no refutation, no theological argumentation, no weighing of the validity of his arguments. They simply lash out in anger. You were born in utter sin. This was not simply a recognition of the universality of original sin. Right? We are all born in sin, that is true. But that was not their point. Rather, this was a very harsh and very personal attack 
referring again back to the fact that this man was born blind. We see the Jews held the view that the disciples held at the beginning. Who sinned, right, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Jews saying, you were born in sin. That's why you were blind. But ironically, in their anger and through this insult, the Jews admitted one of the central points they were seeking to overturn through their investigation. They admit he was born blind after all. Jesus must have opened his eyes. And they cast him out. He is excommunicated, banned from this synagogue, exactly what his parents were afraid would happen to them. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now this story ends gloriously. Notice that it actually closes with a yet greater miracle than what had already taken place. Now this man was born blind, and Jesus did what apparently nobody had ever done before, and that was to open the eyes of a man born blind. And we actually see that this is true on multiple levels by the end of the text. It was true in the literal sense, right? This man was born with physical eyes that did not work, so that he could not see. He had never seen anything in his life until Jesus made some mud, smeared it on his eyes, and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam, and he was healed. He could see. It was a miracle. But notice from this text, this was not the greatest miracle that took place. It was not the greatest thing that happened to him that day. For we read here at the end of the story that there was another kind of sight that this man received. Jesus sought him out, revealed to him the truth of who he was, and the man believed. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah. This man, previous to this, was blind in more ways than one. While the Jews were incorrect in attributing his blindness to his sin, while they were both cruel and inaccurate in what they said and meant, there was yet some truth in that statement. Verse 34, when they said, you were born in utter sin. This man was born in sin. He was born into a fallen and cursed human race. As a result, he was naturally hostile to God. As Jesus said in John 3, this man would have been unable to see the kingdom of God until he was born again. Right? So to come to Christ in faith, to believe in him as this man does, that is what it is to see and to enter the kingdom of God. 
So we see there is more than one miracle performed this day. For not only did this man have his physical blindness healed by Christ, but his spiritual blindness as well. God moved in his heart, granted him a new nature, drew him effectually to his son, opened the eyes of his heart so that he responded in faith to the invitation of Christ. This was the greater miracle. This was the greater blessing that he received that day. Consider this. If he would have only had his physical eyes healed, where would that man be now? Right? This man lived nearly 2,000 years ago. If he was already to the age to give legal testimony, then he had at most another 70, 80 years, 90 for being very generous. And then what? Then he would have died, having lived as a rebel against God. He would have gone to a place of suffering, awaiting the final judgment, when he would then again stand before the man who healed him, but would receive a sentence of eternal condemnation. But because of this second miracle in our text, this man who was blind has instead been with the Lord in glory for the past two millennia. We can imagine very likely honored by the saints and angels for his bold testimony as he stood up for Christ against the attacks of the Pharisees. Very likely honored by the saints who come to tell him that God used his story to be a help and an inspiration for them in their lives. The greater blessing he received that day was this blessing of salvation. He was adopted into the family of God. He became a believer in Jesus, and whether he knew it fully or not, to bow down at Christ's feet and to worship him was the best thing he could have possibly done. And here's where I hope this story really hits home for all of us. As we covered last time, we do not all have the promise that we will receive physical healing in this life. God has not promised us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. The lesser of these two blessings, right? Opening the eyes of the blind man, the lesser of these two blessings is not something that is promised to all Christians. But here is the good news. The greater of the two is. The greater blessing of eternal salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ is offered to all who will turn in faith and repentance to him. Complete and eternal healing. Right, what does it say about the life to come? No sickness, no pain, no death, no sorrow. And so those with disabilities in this life will find eternal healing in the next. Perfect health. Consider we are pilgrims heading to the celestial city. Though we may suffer poverty in this life, or we are not promised riches in this life, consider what awaits us in the next. 
we go to a city described as having streets paved with gold. And whether or not that's meant to be literal, we can, what we can be sure of is that poverty will not afflict us in the life to come. Right. Wealth <laughs> beyond imagining. And we will be truly prosperous, welcomed through Christ to our eternal inheritance, which will be the full enjoying of God himself for all eternity. Right. Here is the greater blessing this man received, was this forgiveness, this salvation, eternal life in Christ. And this is the message we proclaim to all. We are to shine the light of Christ through the proclamation of this glorious gospel. The result then will be the division of all mankind. Many who are in darkness shall see, Right? Those who are lost in sin shall have their eyes opened by the power of the Spirit and come to faith in Christ. But yet, as Christ says, many as well who see shall become blind. Or rather, we could say those who think they see. Such as the Pharisees in this chapter who make so many confident pronouncements but were so profoundly wrong. Such people inevitably reject the true light when it comes. So certain are they that they can see, they utterly reject any suggestion to the contrary, and thereby confirm their own darkness. Many of the Pharisees, and many today, sadly, are not willing to admit their blindness. They are not willing to admit their need, and so are not willing to look for a savior. And so their guilt remains the light that shines in the darkness only blinds them further. And so here is the warning to all who are wise in their own eyes. Recognize your need, admit your blindness, and turn in faith to the light of the world who can heal your blindness. Amen.